Father, that's my prayer this morning. It is our prayer this morning that you would speak to us, Father, through the truth of your word and that you would continue to speak to us week by week, day by day, even moment by moment and hour by hour until your church is built, Father, and the earth is filled with your glory. Father, we need you so much. The days in which we're living in cause all of us to fear. Father, the the days we're living in and some of the circumstances many of us are walking through, Father, challenge our hearts and they test our faith. Father, we know that the testing of our faith isn't a bad thing. You use it to create endurance. You use it to remind us where hope and, and restoration and rest is found, that it's found in Christ and Him alone. The one, as Scott reminded us earlier, has entered in. Uh, through the veil. Father, we, we know that Jesus is our hope. We know that Jesus is our life. And we know that your word is the tool you've given us, the gift you've given us to point us uh, back to him again and again. Father, I think of the psalm that we read here that was read for us just a moment ago in the line in Psalm 138 that says, you have magnified your word according to all your name. Father, your name is holy and righteous. It is merciful and good. Father, your word tells us over and over there's name after name and title after title and description after description, all meant to convey to us who you are and what you're like. And then here, David in the psalm says, now, Lord, take your word and and magnify it according to your name. As great as you are, make your word that great and clear and powerful to us. Father, we ask that today because we need that today. We do not need to hear one man's opinion. We do not need to hear words of human wisdom. Father, we are exhausted with human wisdom. Father, we need the Word of God illuminated and empowered, ignited by the Spirit of God, spoken to and over the people of God, that you might have your way here with us today and always. Father, today more than ever, I'm reminded that I am not up to that task, and that if you don't show up, we have no hope. So, Father, we invite you to come, as always, in the person and the power of your Holy Spirit, and that your Holy Spirit would be the one who teaches, the one who takes your word and applies it to our lives whatever way you see fit, not according to my schemes or ideas or designs. Father, rid us of all things of the flesh that we might decrease and Christ might increase. And have your way among us, Father. Come now and guide us in truth, because your word is truth. Come now and guard us from error and misunderstanding. Father, I don't want to lead or point anyone in the wrong direction. Father, I pray you deliver our hearts today from the stuff we carried in with us that we have not dealt with yet, whether it's a proud heart, an apathetic heart, or a broken heart, an indifferent heart. Father, deal with us as only you can do in personal ways so that in these moments together we might not hear a sermon, but we might see Jesus. Father, may we see your Son, the Lord Jesus, clearly this morning in your word. May we see him only this morning in your word. And let us leave rejoicing in a little while, not because all is right and well with the world, but because all is right and well in heaven. And Jesus has delivered heaven in the person of himself to us. We give you this time. Magnify your word according to all your great name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. While you're taking your seats, we'll allow the boys and girls to go out for Children's Church, five-year-olds, so the second graders. It's been a couple weeks. I'm sure they're anxious to have that time back again. Uh, Maybe some of the moms and dads are anxious for that time to be back again as well. I don't know, but we'll we'll let them make their way out, and I want you, as uh, quickly as you are able, to grab hold of a Bible 
And turn in it with me to Acts chapter 2. I want you to take your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 2. And as you're turning here, let me just say that I am more or less done with saying, here's where we'll be next week, because I keep proving myself wrong, or the Lord keeps proving me wrong. I keep saying, I think next week we'll go here, we'll go there, and we've been trying to get back to 2 Thessalonians for three or four weeks now, and things like floods and other things come our way, and, and, and God has, uh, has redirected on a couple of occasions, and I just want you to know right up front, he's done it again today. And so we're all in this thing together. I want you to find Acts chapter 2, and I want you to get there because I want to begin, first of all, by reading a small portion of God's Word, and then as we work our way through the sermon, incorporating some of the context of what we're going to look at in the hopes that God will give us a complete picture by the time you're done. And as we go, I will try to explain what it is we're doing, and hopefully you will be able to track with me. Acts chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading this morning in verse 1. I'm going to read down just for the moment through verse 4, and then we'll hold our place. But for now, this is what the Word of God says. It says, when the day of Pentecost had come, Pentecost was one of Israel, ancient Israel's annual festivals, when all the people of Israel were called to come to Jerusalem to worship and celebrate and, and be in the Lord's presence together. And when that annual festival came around... They, that is Jesus, 11 remaining faithful disciples and some others, were all together in one place. The one place we'll see in a moment was the upper room where they had the Last Supper, not long before this. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise, like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested, these tongues of fire did on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. The Spirit was giving them utterance. As some of you know, uh, my wife and I had the privilege about a week ago to attend a a conference out in Denver uh, by a group that I am a member of called the 6-4 Fellowship. Uh, It is a ministry uh, expressly dedicated to calling pastors back to their primary biblical task, two things, prayer and preaching the word to get our eyes off of all the stuff, the other things that distract us and get back to the main thing and main things uh, being where they ought to be. Those are outlined in Acts 6-4, prayer and preaching the word, hence the name the 6-4 fellowship. Whatever the case may be, I want you to know that to say it was a phenomenal few days away for us is a vast understatement. Uh, Our spiritual buckets were refilled in more ways than I can count, Uh, still processing much of what we saw and heard. And while the original plan this morning was to return to 2 Thessalonians, and I'm getting anxious, those notes are just sitting on my desk waiting for us to get back to them, it became clear to me, not just when I got back, but even in the midst of that time away with other men and women of God in his presence, and then coming back and praying hard through it and talking with our elders, really believe this morning, and maybe, maybe for the next couple of weeks, Uh, He wants us to go a different direction, and I simply want to take some time, at least this morning, to share with and speak to you out of the overflow of some of what we received about a week and a half ago, what God impressed on our hearts. And to get started, what I want to do is explore the scenes surrounding what we just read here in Acts chapter 2. Because of all the things that we, at least that I heard, that God impressed on my heart in this time away, uh, 
one of the statements that struck me deepest, and the single statement that stuck with me longest is something that, that the leader of the 6-4 Fellowship, my friend, my prayer mentor, Daniel Henderson, said in the very first session when he said this. He said that we don't know when the wind, the mighty rushing wind of the Holy Spirit is going to blow again, but we want our sails set when he does. We don't know when the wind of the Holy Spirit is going to blow again. But we as believers in Jesus Christ want to and must have our sails set when he does. And in a word, what he was talking about in that context was revival. Revival. And, and while technically what happened here in Acts chapter 2, you could not say uh, in the sense, in the actual sense, it was revival, because a revival is the bringing back to life or breathing new life into something that has grown stale or is on the brink of death. And, and Pentecost was a, a never-before-in-history, one-of-a-kind kind of thing. Uh, we haven't seen this sort of event like this either before or since. At the same time, in this story and its surrounding context, we are given a model of what revival, true revival, looks like and the factors that are essential for it to come. But before we dive into all of that, and that's where we're going this morning, these factors, just some of the things that are present in this passage, I want to make sure, and you've heard me do this before, that when I use the word revival, we're all thinking the same thing, that we are operating with the same definition. Because what revival is not, everybody say, what revival's not. What revival is not is a pre-planned series of meetings scheduled months in advance where the people of God gather uh, every night during a week to hear a guest speaker come in to preach the gospel to a room full of people who are already saved. That's not revival. It's called a conference. Conferences are good. They are not necessarily revival because revival can't be scheduled. Revival can't be planned. Revival can't be ordered up on a plate and delivered according to our specifications. Instead, revival, and there are a lot of ways to define it. I'm going to give you mine, and, and sort of counter to what I normally do, I try to, and I say to you, keep things simple. I was unable to do that this morning, or for this morning. I'm going to give you, not maybe the world's greatest definition of revival, but the best I can do in the moment. And we're going to put it on the screen and leave it there for a minute, because it's really, really long. But I want you to get the whole thing, so let me walk you through it. Revival, biblical revival, can be defined as an extraordinary movement of the Holy Spirit, awakening the church, God's church, like never before, to the majesty of the Lord, the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the power of the gospel, through which, when it comes, believers are transformed, unbelievers are saved, and society is reformed to the glory of God. Let me say that again. Revival. An extraordinary movement of the Holy Spirit. Awakening the church like never before to the majesty of the Lord, the supremacy of Christ, the power of the gospel through which believers are transformed, unbelievers are saved, society is reformed to the glory of God. As J.D. Greer adds, I heard him say this about a year ago uh, when I heard him speak at another gathering of pastors and believers. He said, revival is not that God comes and does some sort of brand new thing he's never done before. That's not revival. Revival is simply what happens, J.D. Greer says, when God pours greater power out on the normal things faithful Christians are already doing. 
The normal things that faithful Christians are already doing, through which, J.D. says, prayers become more intense, worship more joyous, repentance more sorrowful, and the preached word yields greater effect. And in the moment when revival comes, J.D. Greer says, God does more, listen to me, in a moment than we can do in a lifetime. Revival is when God comes and does more in a moment than all of us with all our plans and schemes and dreams and ideas could ever manage to accomplish in a lifetime. And I would submit to you this morning, because I believe it this morning, that's something none of us has ever seen. That's something our generation and several generations prior to us, at least in this place, has never seen. But what I also want you to know is there are a few among us here who are praying fervently that we will. There's a group of us that have been praying weekly for 10 years that we will. I discovered last week that there are at least known 130 networks of believers all around the world right now praying that we will. And the point of this morning's message is I am inviting and I am imploring you to join us in praying that once again, like never before, the wind of the Holy Spirit will blow. But we need to have our sails set when it does. And that we would have our sails set and we would know what that involves and what that means. I'm saying to you that if nobody else agrees with me, I want to be ready when it comes. If it comes, when it comes, I want our sails in this church to be set. And that's why we're here in Acts chapter 2. But we are not here in Acts chapter 2, in this particular passage, for some of the, the reasons that some of you might think, and a few of you when I read it, are probably fearful of. Because we are not this morning going to talk about the gift of speaking in tongues. I know that's the main thing that everybody focuses on in these verses. The emergence of the gifts of tongues, the experience, and, and all the rest. It's what everybody focuses on, and it's what a lot of people fight about. Which, by the way, is a sure sign we're missing the point. If God's word's making us fight and argue. Because the main thing is not that the disciples, the apostles, spoke in tongues the main thing, listen to me, is that the Holy Spirit showed up and did so in a truly extraordinary way. The gift of tongues simply confirmed that the Holy Spirit in this instance was in the house. And my point this morning is that when the Holy Spirit came, the people of God in that room were ready. The wind blew and their sails were set. So in the time we have left, what I want to show you is that, well, again, and let me make this clear, we don't know if revival is going to come. And even if we did know it was coming, we don't know when it's going to come. That's God's business. All I know is that this passage tells us much of how we can be ready if it comes and when it comes to make sure that our sails are set. So in these four verses and the surrounding context and the time we have left, let me show you four things about true revival. They are as follows. And this is, again, sort of one great big, these four points are one great big run-on sentence. So hang with me as we put the pieces together. Here's what I want to show you in God's word this morning. True revival can only come, first of all, to, and this may come as a bit of a surprise, revival only comes to, number one, people who already truly know Jesus Christ. Let me say that again, because that was new information to me not so long ago, and maybe it is to you. Maybe you've known this before. Revival comes to people who already truly know Christ. 
Because here's the deal, revival, when it comes, if it comes, and we have seen it, you can trace the history of the church, and it's come, it's come to our nation many times before, not for a long time, by my count we're overdue, but when it's come here and elsewhere before, here's what you need to know, revival never starts out there, right? With all them pagans who need Jesus, revival always, always starts in here, always among the people who already know Jesus Christ. Men, women, and young people who've put their faith in him. It begins with people who are already convinced of the message that Peter began to preach here. If you go down to verse 22 of Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes, the disciples and the others are filled with the Holy Spirit. They take a, a, mo- a few moments together beginning in verse 14, and, and they, they, they agree in, in God's word and, and in preaching what is going on, and then God compels them out into the city with the following message, verse 22. Men of Israel, this is the Apostle Peter speaking. Listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God, But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. In a word, that is the gospel. That is the message of eternal new life in Jesus Christ. Because in summary, what Peter's saying is this, and and he was saying, we bring this to you as people already convinced of it. Convinced of what? That Jesus Christ really was the true and only one and only perfect, holy son of God. And it was attested as he lived here on earth by all the great things he did, that he was sinless in every way and miraculous in every way. And this man, he says, and he calls him to account, you nailed to a cross, our sins, put him on the cross. He died there as a sacrifice for all of our sin, paying the price that we owed. He was put to death, but three days later rose from the dead, triumphant as the victor over death, the forgiver of sins. And the message is this, anyone and everyone who believes in him will be saved. That's the gospel. That's the message that Peter and the rest in the upper room that day already believed. And here's what I'm saying. Look up any, there's a lot of things we could say. Here's what I'm saying. Look up any true revival story in 2,000 years of church history. That's always where it begins. With people who already know that message. People who already have trusted Jesus Christ. So first of all, uh, the first essential factor in revival is it begins with those who already know Christ, but it can here only begin, secondly, only when those who truly know Jesus Christ become convinced of their weakness apart from Jesus Christ. Become convinced if you want to trade out weakness, maybe a better word would be helplessness apart from from Jesus Christ. Back up with me into chapter 1, where this whole scene begins. In the first 11 verses of chapter 1, Jesus has his final moment on earth with his 11 faithful disciples. He gives them their mission, go preach the gospel to the whole world. But he tells them something in verse 4. It says, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me, which is, verse 5, the Holy Spirit, and you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, verse 5, not many days from now. Now, with that said, what the next few verses say is the disciples did exactly what Jesus told them to. Go down to verse 12. Here's where we're going to pick it up. Then they returned. Jesus goes back to heaven. 
Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. It's near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they, these 11 faithful disciples, entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. And they went up to that room and they did what Jesus said. They began to wait. So first and foremost, what I'm taking you to, what we're being taken to here is a scene of waiting. But I really believe there was another W word in effect here or happening in the moment, that first and foremost, this was a scene of waiting, but I believe second and almost as closely, it was a scene of weakness. It was a scene of men who were well aware of their weakness. Because who are these guys sitting in the room waiting? Well, the best best we know from the scriptures is they're a bunch of uneducated fishermen and one reformed tax collector. And at this point in time, because they had given up all the Bible says to follow Christ, they are also 11 men with no jobs, no money, no connections, no power, no leverage, no influence, no friends in high places to open doors of opportunity for them to come out on a stage with the gospel. Not only that, not only was that just true of the 11 guys in the room, I would say, if if I read the story correctly, that they were also wanted men. Because these were the chief associates, these were the inner circles of a man who'd just been put to death by the religious and political authorities. The religious authorities put him to death because they claimed he was a blasphemer. The political authorities put him to death because he was a threat to the empire. And they were in agreement in doing that. We just read it, nailed him to the cross. These guys, they're the inner circle. And once you take the, the big guy out, then you begin to root the rest of them out. I just, I, I could be, this could be wrong, but I happen to think that for the next several days, every time there was a knock at the door, they wondered, have they come for us? We know what Jesus said, but hey, these are real people. They're not superheroes. Are they here for us? Weakness. Men aware of their weakness. That's who Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 happened to. People convinced of their weakness apart from Jesus Christ. Listen, I don't know everything. Far from it that there is to know about revival. There's so much more I want to know. But I do know this. It never comes. Everybody say, it never comes. To people who think they are healthy, wealthy, and wise. It never comes to people who think they have their spiritual act together. It never comes to people who've got all their ducks in a row and, you know, we got more money than we know what to do with and more people coming out the doors and we don't have a care. No. Even if those things are happening, it comes to people who are well aware and who take Jesus at his word when he says in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. nothing. If I don't show up, nothing. Do you believe that? I mean, do you? everything I'm going to say to you today is being processed in my heart. So understand I'm not talking down. I'm not talking at you, I'm talking with you. Do you believe that? Do you really believe apart from him you can do nothing of eternal significance? That it's all wood, hay, and stubble if it's not all about Christ. See, but we do some stuff and, and churches are getting stuff done. Yeah, but time will tell what's built upon the rock and what's built upon the sand. And it's not for me to say, I'm not standing up here, I'm just asking the question, do we believe Jesus? Apart from me, you can do nothing. So get a hold of your weakness, embrace your weakness. It's why what Pastor Thad talked about last week is so important in confession of sin, to realize we really are not as strong as we think we are. That's who revival comes to. 
if it comes, when it comes, it comes to those who already know Jesus Christ and are convinced of one thing above all others, apart from him, nothing. We are, we have nothing. And here's why. Here's why revival comes to such people when it comes, if it comes, should God in his grace send it. It's because those who truly know Jesus Christ, who have become convinced of their weakness apart from Jesus Christ, and this is the really critical thing if you've been sleeping to this point, it's time to wake up. Those who are determined, determined to passionately and to collectively pursue Jesus Christ. To those who determine, who set their mind and heart to passionately and collectively pursue Jesus Christ. And you know where I'm going with this, don't you? Prayer. It's all about prayer. That's what it all comes down to. Because what, listen, let's look at the text together. What were Jesus' friends doing when the Holy Spirit came like a mighty rushing wind? I know what they were doing. I'll tell you. They were praying. You say, but wait, wait, wait. It doesn't say prayer in those first four verses. You're right. So let's back up. Let's go back to the scene preceding it. Acts chapter 1. Verse 12, they returned to Jerusalem. Verse 13, the 11 entered the upper room. Verse 14, here's what went down. They, these all, and these words, each word in this verse matters so much. These all, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer. These all, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer. And if you read the rest of the verse, you know who it was? It wasn't just the 11 apostolic all-stars, all right? It wasn't just the inner circle where everybody else was brewing coffee and grabbing the donuts, all right? It was all of them. Look at the rest of the verse. Here's what it says. Along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with Jesus' earthly brothers that would be the children of Mary and Joseph, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. And it certainly appears to me that once they started, they didn't stop. Ten days passed from Jesus' ascension and what happens here in Acts 1, 12 through 14, and the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. The vast majority of the time in those 10 days was spent by God's people. Because for one, what else are they going to do, right? They have, they're supposed to wait. They have no other jobs or assignments. But they are waiting prayerfully, expectantly, collectively, determinatively for Jesus' promise to be kept for the Holy Spirit to come. 10 days. And what happened? I love, again, to quote J.D. Greer how he puts this. Here's what happened. They prayed for 10 days. Peter preached for 10 minutes. Read the sermon. 3,000 people got saved. Is that an extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit? Yes, it is. We move the zeros around. I have moved the zeros around. We preach for 10 years. We pray for two minutes. We unzip our services with prayer and zip it back up when we're done. Generally speaking, this is what the church has done. Once in a while, somebody gets saved. Listen, I'm not discounting the salvation of one soul. 
Every time someone trusts Christ, the angels in heaven, the scripture tell us, rejoice. But do you see the contrast? Ten days of prayer, ten minutes of preaching, 3,000 souls, years and years of preaching, no priority or passion for prayer. And the field's still white for harvest and the workers are few. There's a difference here. Now, listen, don't get me wrong. You know me, I love preaching. I love to prepare to preach. I love to preach. I love to listen to good preaching. It also pays the bills. I'm a big fan, right? And I believe in the preaching of God's word. It has the power to change people's lives. But I've become convinced something, of something in the last year or two, and it is this. You may not share this conviction. I do. We will never preach our way to revival. We've been doing it for a long time. Preaching may be a component. It may be an element. It may be something God uses. But again, if you read the stories of true revival, every single one, revival, and the preaching that accompanies it in whatever way it comes is only birthed when believers in Christ passionately and collectively have gotten to the point of weakness and desperation where they say, we're going to seek you until something changes in prayer. Let me use that to say something very pointed and very personal. Let me just preface what I'm going to say by saying, hopefully after 17 years, you know my heart, even if what I'm about to say stings. It stung me first. We're going to go through the fun together. So know my heart. Every week I pray that I'll never use emotion or manipulation or guilt to try to convince you of anything. I want God's spirit to do the convincing. I want everything else to be forgotten. So hear my heart, even if you don't like the words. For more than a year, more than a year, we have concentrated on prayer here like we've never concentrated on any one thing before except for Jesus Christ himself. I've preached on it almost every Sunday, almost every Sunday for a year. We have provided opportunities, spontaneous planned, collective, small groups, and tried to make it easy as, po as easy as possible for everyone to enter in. We've talked about it a lot. But I wonder, and I'm asking you to search no one's heart but your own, please, has it changed anything in your life? If your personal prayer life is better, praise God, I'm a fan. If your family's prayer times are better, they're starting Praise God, I'm a fan. This is different. This is the people of God together, collectively, passionately pursuing him in prayer. Has anything in your life or your priorities changed? And it's not what I want to do. It's what is my want compelled me to do. Honestly, please hear my heart, okay? If you're mad at me, that's fine but it troubles me, it aches me that 200 of us will show up for free lunch on the lawn and 25 come to the prayer meeting. I don't think that's the way it's supposed to be. It troubles me that, me included, I have no problem spending $35 to go downtown and see Switchfoot. I have no problem, some of us, spending $75 to go cheer our brains out at a football game and we won't come spend an hour with Jesus for free. I think there's a problem. I don't know what it is. 
And it may be different in each of our hearts. And listen, I'm not, I'm not saying I've arrived. I have so far I want to get in terms of prayer in my own life and leading others in that direction. I'm not asking you to pity me or anyone else. I'm not asking you. I'm not trying to guilt you into anything. Frankly, I believe the praying few can secure the blessing for the many, and I think it's happening. I just think you're missing out. And I'm missing out by not getting to pray with you. Because you bring things to the table that I don't. And it doesn't have to be fresh encounter. It doesn't have to be Friday morning's prayer gathering. And I'm not saying every time you come, it's going to be off the church dynamic and the Holy Spirit's wind's going to blow. But it might. And in small ways, sometimes it does. And even if not, would you agree with me when I say that time spent in Jesus' presence is always time well spent? We agree it with it. Has anything changed? Nobody's heart but your own. Nobody, nobody's heart but my own. And if nothing's changed, if the answer is, well, not really, I beg you, get alone with the Lord and figure out why. If it's us, talk to me. If it's something in your heart, deal with it. Deal with it. You are missing out. We are missing out. And, and, and I believe with all my heart that when we give God our undivided attention, he is pleased to come and give us his. And because revival, I don't know if revival is going to come. And even if it does, I don't know when it's going to come. And I may not live to see it, but I think I might. But it only comes when those who truly know Jesus Christ are so convinced of their weakness apart from Jesus Christ that they are compelled to passionately and collectively pursue Jesus Christ. And it can't come in any other way. Sorry, that's the Bible's lesson, not mine. Finally, revival can only come when those who know Christ convinced of their weakness apart from Christ, determined to passionately and collectively pursue Jesus Christ, and they insist on one thing, that all the glory goes to Jesus Christ. And in doing so, we insist it's not about us. It's about him. Because here's what it looks like. Can I just give you a little, I'm not going to ask, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to give you a picture of what happens when God moves, when God's people set their sails and the Holy Spirit chooses when, when at God's direction in his sovereign timing, the mighty rushing wind of the Spirit comes. It starts in verse 37. Here it is. Peter and the apostles, the others, they're praying. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They go out and preach the gospel. Ten minutes at best, Peter's sermon according to the text. Here's what we're told happened in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they is all them sinners out there. They were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Here's every, this should be every Christian's dream. Brethren, what should we do? Friends, what are you telling us? What do we do with the message we just heard? And Peter said, I thought you'd never ask. Repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to, the, call to himself. And with many other words, Peter solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, here's a message for today. Be saved from this perverted generation. That'll preach this morning. There's a message for our culture if we've ever heard one. And you know what? You can. And you can still live in it and be saved from it at the same time. 
if you're into giving all the glory and all the honor to Jesus Christ. So then, verse 41, here's what happened. Those who received his word were baptized, and they were that day added about 3,000 souls, and there were high-five pats on the backs and apostolic autographs all around. <laughs> Next morning, Peter woke up. There's a contract in his mailbox. Peter, put it in a book. We'd like to market and export this. Tell us how to get people saved. Tell us how to manufacture. No, that's not what happened. What happened? Look at verse 42. They, now it's the inside and the outside because they're all together in one body of Christ, were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Not to the apostles, to their teaching. To fellowship. You know what fellowship is? Fellowship is sacrificial, loving, compassionate friendship and care for one another. It didn't end when they walked out the door at 12.05. To the breaking of bread, that is an expression of worship that culminates in the communion table where we celebrate the body and blood of Christ. And a prayer. Guess what? What got them there? They decided that was so good. Let's do some more. Look at what God did when we saw his face. How about we get back on our faces again and see what he might do next? And you get the book of Acts. You get the church of Jesus Christ. You get the gift of salvation because of what they did there. And their sails were set. We're going to dig into this part, by God's grace, next week. A whole lot more in Psalm 115, what it means to be all about the glory of God. The point this morning is simply this. In this instance, in this moment of an extraordinary movement of the Holy Spirit, all the glory went where it belonged. It did not go to the apostles or anyone else. It went to Christ. And that is a definite sign that revivals come. And we can truly say, not to us, not to us, but to your name, Lord, be all the glory. Would you agree with me when I say that people today, we know them, they all, they're looking for hope like they have never looked for it before. Anybody agree with me on that? Nobody agrees with me. Are you guys living in the same culture I live in? <laughs> you clearly don't read the same news websites, right? People are looking for hope like never before. They're longing for hope. They're desperate for hope. They'll believe anything if they think it gives them hope. But let's be clear about something. Hope is not going to be found in either on one hand making America great again or on the other hand believing that somehow we're all stronger together. I'm not saying that stuff's not important. There are consequences and all the rest, but we are way too wrapped up in it, people. Way too wrapped up. And even if whatever happens... On the evening of November 6th, whether it goes your way or not, I guarantee you, whatever hope you get, you will be disappointed because that's the way the world works. If we find our hope anywhere else, it can't last. There's only one anchor for the soul, and it's a bigger anchor than our presidential election. We've got to get over this by putting our eyes on Christ and letting him lead us in the way we should go. We need to talk less about who's going to win and more about who's on the throne. Please. Please, please. We all know it's bad. We also, in this room, know there's only one hope, and it's Christ. Again, I'm not saying those things don't matter. I'm just saying you will be, if that's where we put our hope, we'll be disappointed because authentic hope, real hope, lasting, enduring, life-changing hope can only be found, here it is one more time, when those who know Christ are convinced of their weakness apart from Christ, think we're pretty close to being there. 
So they're compelled to passionately and collectively pursue Christ, and they insist that all the glory goes only to Christ. And when the people who believe that act on those convictions, whether God ever chooses in his grace to bring revival or not, because he might and he might not. But our sails need to be set. Our sails must be set. And I'm going to ask you one more time, what are you going to do? Now what do you think about what you've heard? What are you going to do with what God puts on your heart today? You know, one of the most compelling things I heard last week never thought of this before. I'll share this thought with you, and then I promise I'm done. Is that when you look down through the history, and I went and checked some of my books to see if this is true. When you look at 2,000 years of church history and when revival has broken out, and it's happened in our country, again, we're way overdue. (laughs) But it's happened before. But when revival has come, whether it's come to a city, to a state, to a region, to a nation, wherever it's come, interesting thing happens. It doesn't hit every gathering of believers in Jesus Christ. It doesn't. You ever watch the meteorologists talk about how a tornado, it hits one house, jumps three, leaves them untouched, and then it hits the next one? Nobody understands that. The wind of the Spirit, historically, we're shown, blows that way. Revival doesn't come to those who aren't prepared. It bypasses them. That's, that's awful. That frightens. I don't want that to be. Revival comes to those whose sails are set. So that when the wind of the Spirit blows, they're not running around trying to fix the rigging and unfold the sail and, whoa, we better catch up. I mean, by God's grace, maybe you can. I want them set. I hope you want them set. Because when the wind of revival blows, it hits those whose sails are set. You understand the image giving you. He brings it to those whose hearts are ready. And that's why the big idea this morning is pretty simple, but it's really important. It's that revival is every believer's business. It's not your pastor's business only and his conferences that he goes to and has so much fun. It's not your elder's business. It's your business and my business because at the foot of the cross, we're all on equal ground, level ground. We all need Jesus. And it's every believer's business. I happen to think that it can hit a church and not hit every believer in the church because some of them aren't ready. You don't want to be that guy. You don't want to be that kid. You don't want to be that lady. You want to be ready. Let's pray that he makes us ready. And then let's act on what we have heard. Father, more than ever, I pray that we have only heard the wisdom of Jesus today and that we will disregard and discard and even forgive the foolish wisdom of one man preaching where he is incorrect. Father, we need your spirit and we trust your spirit can help us sift through right from wrong, truth from error, guilt from conviction. But Father, we need our sails set. Father, I pray that you would deal with us, that you would sift our hearts, that you would sift our church in grace and in kindness, but in power and clarity, calling us back to yourself. Father, some of us, we just long, we've tasted and and we long for more. Others have waited and let others go before them. Father, we don't judge, discern who's on board and who isn't. That's your business, but I pray we'd all be on board with what you want to do. Father, we don't know if or when the winds of revival will blow. It sure seems like it's time. Maybe in your grace we're not ready and you're calling us to get ready for an extraordinary movement of the Holy Spirit, awakening us to the majesty of the Lord 
to the joy and the power of Jesus Christ, to the power of the gospel, so that believers will be revitalized, unbelievers saved by the masses, and society reformed to the glory of God. Oh God, make it so. In Jesus' name.